0: Welcome to the African-American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you an hour of information, opinion, culture, and history about the African-American community. On this program, I'll bring you readings from Anscape.com, Ophthalmology Times, the Richmond Times-Dispatch newspaper of Virginia, Insider.com, Smithsonian Magazine, Inc. Magazine, and I'm going to get started with two stories about African Americans living outside of the USA. The first is titled, Blacks Why So Many Black Americans Are Moving Abroad. I found this in the Los Angeles Times newspaper, and it was published October tenth, twenty 2023, and written by Kate Linthicum. Filmmaker Jamila Narodin, capital N-U-R-I-D-D-I-N, was locked down in Los Angeles during the pandemic watching the nation convulsed in protest over the murder of George Floyd when she had an epiphany. America does not deserve me. As a black woman, Narodin always tried to work twice as hard as those around her thinking, if I'm smart enough, pretty enough, successful enough, then finally people will treat me as a human being. But as she grieved yet another unarmed black man killed by the police, She decided she was done trying to prove herself to a society that she felt would never really love her back. So Neredin, 39, packed her bags and left. She ended up in Costa Rica, in an idyllic beach town on the Caribbean coast that has become a hub for hundreds of black expatriates fed up with life in the United States. She now spends her days working for U.S. clients from chic cafes, leading healing ceremonies at a local waterfall, and trying to figure out who she is exactly, outside of an American context. It's like leaving an abusive relationship, she said, of exiting the United States. The expats forging new lives in Puerto Viejo are part of a wider exodus of black Americans from the U.S. in recent years, with many leaving for reasons that are explicitly political. Exhausted by anti-black discrimination and violence back home, they're building communities in countries such as Portugal, Ghana, Colombia, and Mexico. Often referred to as Blacksit, which combines the words black and exit, the movement has been boosted by social media, where influencers share inspirational posts about their odysseys abroad and challenge others to join them. It is also aided by a new industry of businesses that provide relocation services specifically for African-Americans and by Facebook and WhatsApp groups such as Black in Bali, Black in Tulum, and Brothers and Sisters in Mexico City, whose members share tips on everything from how to pay local bills to where to find a good hairstylist. There are no official statistics on how many have left the country, but academics say it may be one of the most significant immigrations of African Americans since the first half of last century, when many black artists decamped to Europe. The late writer James Baldwin, who was part of that earlier wave, said he moved to France in 1948 with the theory that nothing worse would happen to me there than had already happened to me here. Seven decades later, the U.S. is still grappling with racism with black people twice as likely as white people to be killed by police and black workers earning less on the dollar than their white counterparts. In Florida, a new law forces teachers to downplay the impact of slavery and across the country. Far-right activists are seeking bans on books touching on black history. Americans of all races have been leaving the U.S. thanks to the pandemic shift to remote work. But for black Americans, many of whom were distraught over the political and racial divisions the pandemic years highlighted, the decision to move abroad is about more than just saving money or having an adventure. It gave people time to question, said Krishan Wright, who launched a podcast in 2020 that documented her move to Lisbon. She now works as a relocation consultant and is helping about a dozen families restart in Portugal. They are mostly black professionals with children, she said, in search of a better quality of life without the emotional and psychological strain. Many of those who are leaving are trying to escape their Americanness, yet are also having to confront the power of their dollars in what Wright calls passport privilege. Wright, 49, a former marketing executive who spent most of her life in New York and New Jersey, left in part because she couldn't bear the thought of living through another American presidential election. During the 2020 contest, after which President Trump's supporters overran the U.S. Capitol to try to stop certification of Joe Biden's win, she was racked by insomnia and lost her appetite. I was rattled to my core, Wright said. Departing the country meant being able to take a full breath for the first time. On a rainy late summer afternoon in Mexico City, Tierra Darnell raced around her packed restaurant hugging friends' hello as she delivered heaping plates of fried chicken to crowded tables of customers. I'm behind, she panted as she weaved through a pack of people dancing to funk and soul hits. Her soul food business, Blacksicochina, capital B-L-A-X-I-C-O-C-I-N-A, has become a meeting point for the growing community of black American expats here. Darnell was living in Buffalo and working for Spotify when a friend already based in Mexico convinced her to move down. Rents were cheap, he promised, and the people were kind. Darnell also felt dread about where the U.S. was headed and had decided that it was time for her to stop trying to fix a system that wasn't created for me. Life is short. Life is precious, she said. I don't want to spend my time and my energy fighting. She was inspired by Mexico City. By the care put into cooking by the abundance of fresh fruit and by other black expats who were creating pop-ups and dance parties that were transforming the city's cultural scene darnell's new home is one point on a map of emerging black immigrant hubs mexico city or bangkok for those who want a faster pace cartagena colombia or tulum mexico for lovers of the beach accra ghana for those hoping to connect with their african roots Some countries have made an explicit push to draw African Americans. You do not have to stay where you are not wanted forever, Ghana's tourism minister said at a ceremony there marking Floyd's death in 2020. You have a choice, and Africa is waiting for you. When Darnell started hosting soul food dinners in her apartment, dozens of strangers would show up, hungry for a taste of home. She was able to open a restaurant with the money she had saved in moving to Mexico and paying cheaper rent. It's a risk she could never have taken back home. My family doesn't have money, she said. We don't have generational wealth. Her restaurant now hosts English-language comedy nights and karaoke parties heavy on 1990s R&B. It's really like cheer, said Charday Davis, a 34-year-old San Diego native. If you're feeling lonely, if you're feeling a little homesick, you can come here and tap in. As the rain came down in sheets outside, Davis sipped cocktails with a few friends and talked about what it means to be black in Mexico City. Mexico never had formal segregation, and it has a smaller black population than the United States. But discrimination based on skin color is rampant here, with darker-skinned Mexicans earning 52% less than their lighter compatriots, according to a study by Vanderbilt University. Coming here, it was rough for me, said Davis. I get more stares here than I did in Thailand. Still, she said, the looks feel different than in the U.S., less judgmental or suspicious and more curious. People are just like, who are you and where do you come from, she said. Anti-blackness is a global thing. It's not just in the United States, said Krista Shelton, a 47-year-old personal trainer who leads online workouts for clients back in the U.S. I have not had that in my experience here. That's not to say that colorism doesn't exist. I'm sure it does. She and others said they feel safer in Mexico City, where crime has fallen appreciably in recent years, than they do back home. Name one place that has more school shootings than the United States, said Tierra Parker, a 40-year-old marketing director from North Carolina who moved to Mexico in the summer and who also plans to spend time in Colombia and Panama. It's a hot mess, said Davis. When family members inquire about the risks in Mexico, Parker says she tells them, you should probably be more afraid of the white man at your local target. Davis, a professor at the University of Connecticut, has been on the road for months studying the Black Sick Movement, visiting Cambodia, Spain, Turkey, and nearly two dozen other countries. She is particularly interested in the fact that the movement is largely female-led and the ways that early trailblazers have paved pathways for more people to come abroad. There are underground railroads that people have created, she said. I've discovered a whole bunch of Harriet Tubman's. Davia Shannon, 49, a mother of three who grew up in Los Angeles, has become a full-time sick evangelist since moving to Puerto Viejo. From a young age, Shannon's father told her and her seven siblings that there was freedom abroad. When you turn 18, get your passport and leave, he said. A lineman who worked for Pacific Bell and belonged to the Nation of Islam, her father believed that he had been paid less than his colleagues because of his race and he didn't want his children to suffer the same fate. Shannon traveled widely and by her 30s was ready to move away for good. She considered Ecuador, but didn't think there was enough black people there. In 2013, she arrived on the Caribbean side of Costa Rica, an area with a large population of Afro-descended people and an influence from Jamaica that can be heard in the reggae booming on the beach and tasted in the beef patties sold on the street. She felt an unspoken connection to the black locals that she attributed to their shared ancestry and said to herself, I can build a community here. Shannon began boosting Puerto Viejo to her 40,000 Instagram followers. She launched an annual music festival and is in the process of raising money to create a retreat center where any melanated person who has gone through the same traumatic experiences that most of us have gone through can come and just be for six months to a year. She connects new arrivals with doctors, dentists, and real estate agents to help make the transition easier, charging $140 an hour for formal consultations. She says she's helped some 70 people move here many of whom have bought property, built homes, and begun luring down friends of their own. The few hundred African Americans living here call themselves the tribe. On a recent muggy morning, about a dozen of them were hanging out at Shannon's house next to a pool overlooking a canopy of dense jungle. Troy Adams, 33, said he loved waking up to the sounds of the forest. You start to hear the Orchestra of Nature, said Adams, a musician and yoga instructor from Dallas who moved to Costa Rica to study permaculture and never left. At 4 a.m., the howler monkeys go off. Oh, I love the howler monkeys, said Quan Milner, 50, who sold her house in Phoenix and moved to Costa Rica after seeing Shannon's YouTube videos. She now works for Shannon, helping manage her social media. Neriden lives next door on a lushly planted property that features a sprawling outdoor pagoda where she performs kundalini energy sessions. She says she has been unlearning many of her American traits, namely materialism and the impulse to be constantly achieving. I thought I was ambitious, but I was just trying to prove myself, said Neriden, who started working as an actor at age 12 and never let her grade point average in school dip below 4.0. She recalled a Costa Rican construction worker who took off early one afternoon to go to the beach, despite the fact that he hadn't yet finished his work. It's a beautiful day, he said. I'm going fishing. At first, she thought he was crazy. Then she reconsidered. He's right, she thought. It is a beautiful day. There are things more important than hitting a deadline. At times, the cultural differences and the considerable economic advantage of the Americans have caused strains. Tensions are rising, forcing some locals to move to nearby towns where rents are cheaper, a phenomenon that has played out in other places with large populations of American expats, from Portugal to Mexico. Naredin, who has heard the grumblings about rising costs, said her time in Costa Rica has revealed to her the ways that her American salary and passport set her apart. This is the first place I've ever felt privileged in my life, she said. She's been reflecting a lot on her Americanness. On the way, she says, she and her compatriots can come off as pretentious or transactional. Americans in general, we just take up so much space wherever we go, she said. She's also meditated on race and what it means that even in a mostly black community on the Caribbean Sea, she still feels looked down upon for being more dark skinned. White supremacy definitely exists here, even if the racism in the states is different, she said. She acknowledges that she is lucky to have a job that allows her to work remotely, and that a lot of people, including many of those from her parents' generation, don't. She's trying to convince her cousins to find work that will allow them to live outside of the country. Like many black expats here, she's still learning Spanish. She communicates easily with the English-speaking descendants of Jamaicans. But talking to other Costa Ricans is hard. Still, she says, she feels a natural recognition when she locks eyes with black locals. There's almost a little glimmer in the eye when you look at each other, she said. There's like a little nod. Teresa Owens, a 54-year-old who spent her career as a station agent with Bay Area Rapid Transit, moved to Puerto Viejo last year with her 12-year-old son, in part so that he wouldn't have to live with what Baldwin once described as a real social danger visible in the face of every cop, every boss, everybody in the United States. Owens is grateful that they haven't had to have the talk, that difficult conversation between black American parents and their children about the looming threat of police violence. He doesn't have to think about any of that, she said. Instead, she's taught him and his other friends, several of whom are also from the Bay Area, about which snakes are poisonous and how to read the ocean to avoid riptides. He gets to be more of a kid here, she said. Owen starts most mornings with a sunrise walk on the beach. She's learning to surf and does yoga at a local cultural center named years ago after Marcus Garvey, the Jamaican-born political activist who first began dreaming of a Pan-African nation a century ago while working on a banana plantation in the nearby town of Limon. Owens thinks Garvey would be happy knowing that members of the African diaspora are healing themselves in a center with his name. She thinks her ancestors, who were brought across the Atlantic as slaves, would be proud too. When she decided to leave the U.S., part of me felt like it was for them, Owens said. I'm not a captive anymore, she said. There are no chains holding me there other than the ones in my mind. That was the October 10, 2023, Los Angeles Times newspaper article titled "Blacksit: Why So Many Black Americans Are Moving Abroad." My next article is from the German website Deutsche Welle and its DW dot com website. The title is "Back to Roots: Why African Americans Are Flocking to Ghana." It was written by Isaac Kalezi and published January sixteenth, twenty twenty-three. Tanya Safir and Coma. Originally hails from Mississippi in the United States of America, but more than ten years ago she decided to move abroad. I had this strong urge to come to Africa. I wanted to experience it. Something had been tugging at my heart to come and visit the motherland, she told D.W. and Coma says she was inspired by a couple from Tennessee who had visited Ghana several times. They would talk about it all the time, show me pictures, videos and things like that, which stirred up a desire in me even more to come. Safira and Coma finally made it to Africa for the first time in 2010 and Ghana in West Africa was her destination. She quickly fell in love with the continent. The trained lawyer now lives in the capital Accra and married a Ghanaian. I love it here. I would much rather be here than in the United States for sure, she said. Saphir and Koma has since become an ambassador urging many Africans in the diaspora to visit Africa to experience the rich heritage. At least 1,500 African Americans have moved to Ghana since 2019 following a campaign by Ghana's government. The campaign dubbed the Year of Return became a catalyst for many descendants of Africans in the diaspora to embark on a spiritual journey. At the time, it also marked 400 years since the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in Jamestown, Virginia. The year of the return was also to celebrate the resilience of all the victims of the transatlantic slave trade who were forcibly displaced throughout the world, ending up in North America, South America, the Caribbean, Europe, and Asia. The COVID-19 pandemic in 2020 did slow visitors but hasn't stopped African Americans from traveling to West Africa. One of the main highlights of such visits is to tour some historical sites, such as the slave castles in central Ghana, to remind them of their ancestry and to reconnect with the continent. In 2020, Ghana's government launched what they call the Beyond the Return campaign. It is a 10-year project with the theme, A Decade of African Renaissance, 2020-2030. to Clifford Otto Ashun, a senior member of the Museums and Monuments Board of Ghana, told dw that the campaign continues to chalk up much success the two campaigns actually have contributed immensely to the arrival of the african diaspora especially to visit ghana and the slave dungeons ashun said according to ashun there are other activities to keep the interest high among africans in the diaspora too including music festivals felisa freeman originally from california is one of the hundreds of african-american visitors touring the cape coast castle It was her first time in Ghana and her first time to the African continent, she told D.W. My expectation is to experience Africa and culture and sort of soak it in and get a little closer to my roots, Freeman said. The Cape Coast Castle, now a UNESCO World Heritage Site, is the largest of the buildings based around the legacy of the transatlantic slave trade. It played a significant role in the gold and slave trades, the arrival of Christianity, and the establishment of the first formal education system. The slave dungeons, for both male and female inmates, tell the sad story of how Africans shipped across the Atlantic endured the torture and inhumane treatment at the hands of their European masters. It is always an emotional moment for visitors. Coming to the Cape Coast Castle is a connection with history, Freeman said, adding that it gives her the opportunity to see the route her ancestors potentially took to the United States. You just get to see the nature of human struggle for dominance, an emotional Freeman said. The castle still has remnants of the cannons and mortars used in its defense centuries ago. The historical museum inside the castle contains a growing collection of art and cultural objects, including ceremonial drums, old muskets, shackles from the slave trade, and ancient pottery. Tanya Spinkins is also visiting Ghana from the United States for the first time. I came here because I realized that the many stories about enslavement that I get to see in Hollywood movies are lacking Africanness, she told D.W. The hardship of enslavement was the rape and the violence, Spinkins noted. The former fort had an infamous door of no return through which hundreds of thousands of slaves passed, never to return to their homeland. It is the final point of call for visitors when they tour the Cape Coast Castle. Tour guides now allow tourists to exit the same gate and to return through it, but this time upon re-entering, they see a new inscription which reads, The Door of Return. It is a sign that Africans in the diaspora, whose ancestors were taken away during the slave trade, are always welcome back to the continent, a place they can call home. That was the article. Back to Roots, Why African Americans Are Flocking to Ghana. It was written by Isaac Coletzi and it was published January 16, 2023 at Deutsche Welle's DW.com website. My next reading is from the website andscape.com. The title is New Report Finds Black Americans Remain Deeply Skeptical of News Media. It was written by Dwayne Bray and published September 26, 2023. A new survey by the Pew Research Center found that black Americans believe the news media has gone out of its way to portray their community in a negative and stereotypical light, and most don't believe that behavior will change in their lifetimes. The report, Black Americans' Experience with News, builds on decades of criticism of the mainstream American news media from the time when newspapers and magazines were the dominant sources to today, when most people get their news from digital outlets, cable television, or social media. The distribution methods and the dominant media companies have changed, but the attitudes and perceptions of the black news-consuming public remain the same. The Pew survey of more than 4,700 black adults found that nearly two-thirds, 63%, say news about black people is usually more negative than it is for other racial and ethnic groups. More than half attributed this phenomenon to news outlets having an agenda to play up negative or sensationalistic news in the black community. There is not a lot of African-American coverage unless it's February or it's criminal, one 60-year-old woman says in the report referring to Black History Month. These widely critical views of the failings of the news media are widely held regardless of age, gender, household income, or political affiliation. For instance, the study found that among black Democrats and those who lean Democratic, 59% say news about black people covers only certain segments of black communities, along with 55% of black Republicans and Republican leaners. Much smaller shares in both groups say the news covers a wide variety of black people, 9% and 11% respectively. 8 in 10 black people say they see news reports that are outright racist or racially insensitive. 39% say it happens extremely or fairly often and 41% say it occurs sometimes. One area where consensus broke up slightly was along the lines of education. 68% or about two-thirds of black Americans with at least a bachelor's degree say the news they see or hear about black people covers only certain segments of black communities. Black people with a high school diploma or less were less adamant on that point, with about half, 49%, saying the news covers only certain segments of black communities. Major portions of the news media in America have long struggled to satisfy the desires of the black community. In 1968, the Kerner Commission, a panel appointed by President Lyndon B. Johnson in the wake of widespread rioting that had afflicted black communities, castigated news media leaders for their often stereotypical and sensational coverage of black people and a failure to diversify their newsrooms. The journalistic profession has been shockingly backward in seeking out, hiring, training and promoting black people, the commission reported back then, Fewer than 5% of the people employed by the news business and editorial jobs in the United States today are black. Fewer than 1% of editors and supervisors are black people, and most of them work for black-owned organizations. The commission set a goal for newsroom leaders to become reflective of America's diversity by 2000. Today, the number of black working journalists is better than the 1960s, but still low. The U.S. Census Bureau says 14% of the people in the country are black. In a Pew research analysis earlier this year of 12,000 U.S.-based journalists, just 6% were black. Similarly, respondents to this latest Pew study said today's news media executives can improve their coverage and better gain the trust of black America by hiring, retaining, and promoting more black journalists. They said journalists of any ethnicity or racial group can report the news fairly and accurately, but that having more black reporters, editors, and producers working in newsrooms would go a long way toward improving those outlets' institutional understanding of the black community and help bring more credibility to the reports they publish and air, especially on stories involving race and racial issues. It's difficult to ascertain how many black journalists currently work in the news media in America overall because most newsrooms stopped participating in a widely read survey around the time that America started going through a racial reckoning in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd, a black man murdered by Minneapolis police officers in May 2020. The News Leaders Association, which took over responsibility for gathering newsroom diversity statistics from the American Society of Newspaper Editors, was quoted in an Associated Press article in October 2021 as saying that more than 80% of newsrooms didn't respond to an offer to voluntarily provide their diversity data. According to the latest figures from the Radio-Television Digital News Association, 13.2% of the workforce in the television industry in America was black in 2022, compared to 6% of TV newsroom leadership. Separately, some of America's largest newspapers and wire services have decided to start publishing their own diversity numbers. The New York Times reports that black people were 10% of its news and editorial staff and 8% of leadership in 2022. The Washington Post newsroom staff is 9.7% black and leadership 7.9%. In 2021, the AP said 7% of its staff was black. Black respondents cited a variety of reasons for what they see as negative coverage of their community. 51% agree that it's a result of news organizations pushing agendas. 45% say it's also because journalists aren't informed. 42% agree with a question asking if racism is part of it. 37% blame it on the speed of the news cycle and 36% attribute it to a lack of black staffers. Few respondents see the problem being fixed anytime soon. Just 14% say it is extremely or very likely that black Americans will be covered fairly in the news during their lifetime. The authors of the Pew Report write, a far higher percentage 38% are deeply pessimistic about this, saying that it is not too or not at all likely to happen. Another 40% fall somewhere in the middle saying it is somewhat likely to happen. Even the youngest black adults are largely skeptical that black people will be covered fairly in their lifetimes. Very few, 12% of those ages 65 and older say this is extremely or very likely as do 17% of black adults under 30. However, the youngest group is somewhat less inclined to see this prospect as not to or not at all likely to happen, 31% versus 44%. Black adults 50 and over tend to get their news from local and national outlets, and younger people rely more on social media channels. Even those under 50 report having little trust in the accuracy of what they see on social media. 24% of those responding say they get news from black outlets extremely or fairly often, while another 40% say they do sometimes. That was the article titled, New Report Finds Black Americans Remain Deeply Skeptical of News Media. It was published at the Anscape.com website. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner. My next reading is from Ophthalmology Times and is ophthalmologytimes.com website. The title is Disparities Remain an Obstacle to Health Equity in Eye Care. It was published September 20th, 2023 and was written by Linda Charters. Of all the forms of discrimination and inequality, injustice in health care is the most shocking and inhumane because it often results in physical death. Martin Luther King, Jr. This quote cuts to the heart of the matter, but Mildred Olivier, M.D., speaking recently at the National Medical Association's 121st Annual Convention and Scientific Assembly, explained that other issues come into play before a meaningful discussion of this important topic can take place. Olivier is Associate Dean of the School of Medicine at Ponce Health Services University in St. Louis, Missouri. Olivier explained that when the topic of inequity is broached, Complex feelings often emerge, including guilt, anger, resentment, and defensiveness. You may perceive me of accusing you of being racist or sexist, she says. You may feel I have a specific political agenda or that I lack objectivity. However, she noted, if health profession leaders cannot acknowledge and process these difficult emotions, how can they expect others to do so? Health professionals are not taught about the connections between white supremacy, oppression, injustice in health, Olivier said. We have been socialized to believe that it is not polite to talk about racism, injustice, and oppression. She enumerated multiple educational objectives involving discussions of structural and personal racism, racial and ethnic health disparities, big data, importance of data collection and clinical trials, and education of patients and colleagues. The objective is to examine and dismantle racism head-on and not sidestep the issue on institutional, structural, personally mediated and internalized levels. We must examine structures, policies, practices, norms and values to determine how racial inequities are being maintained and how could race be operating here, Olivier said. Olivier defined a health disparity as a difference based on one or more health outcomes that adversely affects members of a defined disadvantaged population. The difference is perpetuated by social injustice in which public and institutional practices, cultural representations, and other norms work to reinforce perpetuation of racial group inequities. The most important component of this is the defined populations. These populations are designated by the U.S. Congress, she stated. Social determinants of health, i.e. economic stability, neighborhood and physical environment, education, food, community, safety, social context and health care system involve inequality relating to health-damaging experiences resulting from the toxic combination of poor social policies, unfair economic arrangements and bad politics. All of the elements involved in the social determinants of health interact to determine morbidity, mortality, life expectancy, Healthcare expenditures, health status, and functional limitations. She posed two questions. Do new medications, devices, and surgical procedures allow equal access for those who are underrepresented? Do underrepresentation in research and overrepresentation in incidence and prevalence of disease have a role? A quick look at two breast cancer statistics illustrates the point. Olivier noted the death rate is 41% higher for black women compared to white women and only 6% of black women participate in breast cancer clinical research. Olivier explained that not all segments of the population have benefited from advances in science and medicine and the disparities in clinical and genomic research are well characterized. In addition, she said, distinct populations have been understudied in science underrepresented in research, and underserved by medicine. Also, data representative of real-world patient populations are required to optimize clinical outcomes for all patients. The data show that 8% of the global population participates in clinical research, 80% of the participants are Caucasian, and 91% of the genomics databases only contain data from patients of European ancestry. The NIH, National Institutes of Health Revitalization Act of 1993, mandates the inclusion of women members of minority populations in all NIH-funded clinical research as appropriate to the studies undertaken. The law's primary goal is to ensure that research findings are generalizable to the entire population. To meet this end, clinical trials must be designed to provide information about differences by sex, gender, race, and or ethnicity, Despite this, the awareness of health disparities in clinical trials remains well recognized. The American Academy of Ophthalmology Task Force on Disparities in Eye Care identified the following issues. Members of minority populations face higher risk of ocular disease, visual impairment and blindness. Older individuals are more at risk and disproportionately affected. Sex and gender differences exist in eye care and older Hispanic patients and others use fewer low-vision devices. Regarding sociodemographics and diseases, the following problems have been identified. Complex cataracts have disproportionately higher prevalence rates in patients who are Black, Hispanic, or Chinese American. Lower rates of cataract surgeries performed among Black or Hispanic patients. Black patients are more likely to develop anterior uveitis after cataract surgery. There is a higher risk of glaucoma with older patients. Higher rates of glaucoma surgery are performed due to underdiagnosis and later patient presentation. Higher prevalence rates of glaucoma are seen in Hispanic and white women and in Asian American patients. Higher glaucoma surgical failure rates are seen in non-white populations. Olivier placed the burden squarely on clinicians and urged that data continue to be collected from underserved populations, that clinicians continue to acknowledge and pilot interventions to address social determinants, including systemic racism, that they build infrastructure to identify modifiable determinants at multiple levels, that they elevate community concerns, formulating ways to increase underrepresented population participation in clinical trials and genomic databases, and that they increase diverse populations to improve scientific understanding of various ophthalmic conditions and improve the standard of care for all patients. That was the article, Disparities Remain an Obstacle to Health Equity in Eye Care, and it was written by Dr. Linda Charters. It was published September twentieth, 2023, at the ophthalmologytimes.com website. My next reading is from the Richmond Times Dispatch Newspaper of Virginia. The title is, On Monuments, Roanoke Took a Different Path. It was published October 8, 2023 and written by Michael Paul Williams. As throngs of protesters took to Richmond streets demanding justice and taking down Confederate monuments, a 70-year-old retired banker in Roanoke took the fate of a city memorial to Robert E. Lee into his own hands. On the night of July 22, 2020, William Clay Foreman used a chain and a rented truck to topple the 10-foot-tall granite obelisk memorializing the Confederate General, a preemptive strike in a city that was going through the public process of removing the marker in a downtown pocket park, according to the Roanoke Times. I didn't want it to become a mini-Richmond Foreman said. Foreman eventually pled guilty to a misdemeanor. He died in August 2022, but his spirit lives on in Roanoke, a place that only half-heartedly bought into the lost cause idolatry. On Wednesday, October 4th, in what was formerly Lee Plaza, the city unveiled a statue to Henrietta Lacks, described by civil rights attorney Ben Crump as the mother of modern medicine, according to the Roanoke Times. Lacks went to the hospital at Johns Hopkins University in 1951 for a treatment of the cervical cancer that would eventually kill her. Tissue taken from her tumor, without her knowledge or consent, became the first human cells to regenerate every 24 hours. Those immortal HeLa cells enabled groundbreaking research and innovations. But it was only in August that her family reached a settlement with the science and technology company that it said took Lack's cells and profited from them, according to the Times story. Lack's grandson, the family's lawyers, and the sculptor's artists were among more than 300 people on hand at what is now Lack's Plaza. To me, it was a breathtaking monument, said Mayor Sherman Lee. We're just so proud and happy that we can recognize her. Lacks lived only briefly in Roanoke. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. never visited, and yet their statues are the most prominent in this city of just under 100,000 people in southwestern Virginia. Charles Price runs the Harrison Museum of African American Culture. His wife Anita Price is a former vice mayor of Roanoke. On Wednesday, he was one of the folks removing the covering from the Lack statue. On Friday he called his hometown a unique space that allows the growth of the African-American community. Only about 29% of Roanoke's population is black, 7% is Latino, but its city council is among the most diverse you'll find in Virginia. Three members are African-American, one member is Latina, and three members are openly gay white men. Meanwhile, a Roanoke Democrat, Sam Rasool, is one of two Muslims in the Virginia General Assembly. It is an unusual profile for a southern city with the lovely mountain setting and relative size of Asheville, North Carolina, but not its unabashedly progressive reputation. But Roanoke's history has few parallels to Richmond's. Roanoke was a boom town that sprang up in the 1880s as a result of railroads in the opening of the coal fields, earning the nickname the Magic City. An influx of residents from other regions and immigrants from abroad gave Roanoke a different character than that of antebellum Old Money, Virginia, says veteran journalist Duane Yancey, editor of Cardinal News and former editorial page editor for the Roanoke Times. Roanoke wasn't here during the Civil War, so its history is very different from other cities in Virginia, Yancey said. Roanoke was no utopia. It had its share of racial issues but a young Linwood Holton discerned a difference between Roanoke and the rest of Virginia. In 2017, a downtown plaza was dedicated to Holton, who as governor ushered in a new era of race relations in Virginia. A Roanoke Times story on the occasion recalled young Holton's decision to set up a law practice in Roanoke thusly. Though Roanoke is highly segregated and slow walk school integration until the early 1970s, Holton saw it as more free of the plantation mentality of Old South cities that favored segregation. Or, as Lee said in an interview on Friday, we've always tried to be inclusive and just highlight those things that have made a difference in our community and in our country. Yes, Roanoke is a heavily democratic city, he said, but he attributes the diverse composition of the city council to the trust built by members being active in their communities. They accept people for what they bring to the table, he said of Roanoke residents. The Roanoke Memorial is the only statue of Virginia. It sits at the foot of a pedestrian bridge that also bears his name and links downtown Roanoke to the historic black neighborhood of Gainesborough. That neighborhood commemorates legendary civil rights lawyer Oliver W. Hill Sr., who was born in Richmond but spent his formative years in Roanoke, and Edward G. Dutley who in 1949 became the first African-American to hold the rank of ambassador. Black folks in Roanoke had their share of battles, but Yancey says white business people observing troubles elsewhere in the South worked behind the scenes with prominent black leaders to bring about integration. The flip side is some people say that means there isn't much civic activism in Roanoke because there wasn't that history of having to fight for things. An August 1961 moment belies that sentiment. The Baltimore Colts and Pittsburgh Steelers were slated to play a preseason game at Roanoke's Victory Stadium. Both teams were integrated, and the NAACP appealed to them not to play in a segregated stadium as dictated by Virginia law at the time. The team said they would not cross an NAACP picket line, and black fans bought tickets in the white section. Roanoke officials essentially looked the other way according to a website honoring the late Roanoke civil rights leader, the Reverend R.R. R. Wilkinson. When that moment of racial reckoning arrived in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer, there were confrontations between law enforcement and protesters in Roanoke. But there were precious few Confederate monuments for protesters to focus their ire, even if they were so inclined. I think Roanoke has always been a very practical place, Yancey said. Not that statues are impractical, but Roanoke has not been a fancy place. Its history was the blue-collar railroad town. And putting up statues to grand figures of the past wasn't your top-of-mind thing. Think of where Richmond and the nation might be today if the lost cause narrative hadn't prevailed. The embrace of sedition and succession more than a century and a half later has become, again, an existential threat to our nation. As long as people cling to it, there will always be unrest. That was the article titled On Monuments, Roanoke Took a Different Path. It appeared in the Richmond Times Dispatch Newspaper of Virginia at its Richmond.com website and was published October 8, 2023. My next article is from the website Insider.com. It's titled After a stranger tried to take a black family's land, they spent 12 years in court trying to get it back. It was written by Yoon Ji Han and published October 8, 2023. Michael Robinson didn't realize his family owned a sizable chunk of land until a complete stranger sued them nearly 12 years ago. In 2012, a man named James E. Deschler II capital D-E-S-H-L-E-R, sued members of the Robinsons family to force them to sell their shares of the land in Barlow Bend, Alabama. Robinsons' late grandfather, Joe Ely, had purchased the farmland in 1941 and his family members inherited the property when he died. Under Alabama law, anyone owning an interest in a plot of land could sue the other landowners to force a sale. Several months prior, Deschler had purchased one-fifteenth of Ely's land from two of Robinson's cousins, giving him the legal right to try to obtain the rest of the land. The 127 acres of farmland didn't just have monetary worth, estimated at $212,000, but sentimental value too. The property had long been a gathering place for family reunions and cookouts. I could not believe that someone we didn't know now owned a portion of our family's land, Robinson told Insider. Deschler and his attorney, J. Glenn Padgett, did not respond to Insider's request for comment. In the decades following the end of slavery in the United States, black Americans amassed millions of acres of farmland, peaking at between 16 million and 19 million acres around 1910, according to the Census of Agriculture. Unfortunately. Now we've seen a kind of trend away from the connection to that land, Thomas Mitchell, a law professor focusing on property issues at Boston College, said in the documentary Gaining Ground, which explores the legacy and struggles of black farmers. The way that enslavement is taught in our schools has African-Americans really ashamed of that legacy of land. But today, black Americans own just two million acres of land the result of a century of land theft by largely white farmers and landowners. Heirs' property disputes, referring to issues over land transferred to multiple family members by inheritance, usually without a will, are a common problem for southern black farmers. They're also a common practice that white farmers historically have abused to take land from black farmers and their descendants. By Mitchell's conservative estimate, the land that black Americans have lost since the early 20th century amounts to about $326 billion. And that's just farmland. Black Americans have also been targets of urban land dispossession, like in the case of Bruce's Beach, a California property that was owned by a black couple, Charles and Willa Bruce. In 1924, the Manhattan Beach Board of Trustees seized the property via eminent domain. It wasn't until 2022 that it was officially returned to the Bruce family. We're talking about trillions of dollars of generational wealth that have been washed away, Mitchell said in gaining ground. It fell on Robinson, a corporate and nonprofit advisor, to help spearhead the family's efforts to fight the lawsuit. But there were immediate hurdles, like the fact that there were more than 40 siblings, cousins, aunts, and other relatives who were heirs to Joe Ely's land. Robinson and his cousin Deborah Ely formed what he described as a land retention committee to unite all members of the family. It also meant the lawsuit made its way through the court system much slower than usual. If a family member died during the process, the land immediately went to their children and the court would have to notify the children all over again. It was like herding cats for a while, Robinson told Insider, but in the end the lawsuit ended up being a galvanizing call for us. The land was of sentimental value to the Ely's, but the lawsuit signaled there was some financial value too, and Robinson discovered it had recreational value because of its proximity to the Alabama River. I didn't want three or four generations from now for some member of the family to say, didn't we have over 100 acres of land, Robinson said. I didn't want someone to say, That generation didn't fight to keep the land in the family. So we adopted this model of not on our watch. After 12 years in the courts, the judge dismissed the case in the Ely's favor in August of this year. They were also able to reclaim Deschler's 1 15th interest of the property. Their victory was all the more meaningful given the broader history of black Americans disenfranchisement and land loss. During the process, Robinson learned that a fifth of his family's land was a former plantation. To me, it had even more meaning that people were enslaved on that land, and now we owned it and we had the opportunity to change the narrative, the legacy, and the history on that land, he said. Since his family defeated the lawsuit, Robinson put the land in an LLC named in honor of his grandparents as a way to pay homage to their legacy. While they still plan to continue using the land as a gathering place, the Ely family is also eyeing business opportunities to make the most of the land and allow it to become a resource for them. Reclaiming the land is about reclaiming our birthright, Robinson said. I never met my grandfather. He died in 1959 before I was even born. But it was so important for me to honor his legacy and the intent when he purchased that land. He could only dream or imagine where we are as a people of color today. And I wanted to take the blood, sweat, and tears that went into that land and not let that die. That was the article titled, After a Stranger Tried to Take a Black Family's Land, They Spent Twelve Years in Court Trying to Get It Back. I found it at the Insider.com website. And my final reading for this program is from Smithsonian Magazine, and it's September slash October 2023 edition. It's from the column Institutional Knowledge, which is written by Lonnie Bunch III, who is the Secretary of the Smithsonian Institution. The title of this column is "The African Atlantis: A New Exhibition imagines a world in which the Middle Passage created lives." instead of claiming them. When I was building the National Museum of African American History and Culture, NMAAHC, I was determined to collect the remnants of one of the many ships that carried enslaved Africans across the Atlantic. To do so, we partnered with George Washington University, the Iziko Museums of South Africa, and several other institutions to create the Slave Wrecks Project, which helped recover the Sal Jose capital S-A-O, capital J-O-S-E, a Portuguese slave ship that sank off the coast of South Africa in 1794. Several artifacts from the shipwreck now reside in the NMAAHC's permanent collections. Many more ships, and the human remains of the nearly 2 million people who died during the Middle Passage have never been recovered. A new exhibition at the National Museum of African Art which celebrates its 60th anniversary next year, imagines an alternative universe in which generations of African people who never reached the Americas thrive in an underwater world deep in the Atlantic. Ayana V. Jackson, a photographer and contemporary fine artist, began formulating the idea for the exhibition From the Deep in the Wake of Drexia with Ayana V. Jackson capital D-R-E-X, C-I-Y-A, as a Smithsonian Artist Research Fellow in 2018. I am gratified to see her work continue to shape the Smithsonian years later. In the exhibition, she conjures the underwater kingdom imagined by the Detroit-based techno music duo Drexia. There, pregnant African women who were thrown overboard or jumped from slave ships gave birth to children who could breathe underwater where they built a utopian society. Originally more militaristic and masculine with a focus on the men of Drexia seeking revenge the myth is put through a feminist lens in Jackson's reimagining. Using photography, costume design, immersive video and other media, Jackson grieves the mothers who drowned after giving birth to the members of this fictional society and imagines their expansive underwater world. Jackson trained as a freediver to be able to film herself swimming in the ocean at depths greater than 100 feet. She traveled throughout Africa and the Caribbean to shoot underwater scenes and worked with African designers to imagine the clothing of an aquatic black society from the Elizabethan period onward. The resulting exhibition reclaims the Middle Passage tragedy and creates something resilient and beautiful. That was the column titled, The African Atlantis, A New Exhibition Imagines a World in Which the Middle Passage Created Lives Instead of Claiming Them. It was written by Lonnie G. Bunch III and appeared in the September-October 2023 edition of Smithsonian Magazine. That's all the time we have this week. If you would like to listen to this program again or past editions of the African American Hour, you can find them wherever you get your podcast or at the Audio Reader website at reader.ku.edu. I'm Byron Buckner, and thank you for listening to the African American Hour.